Hello, everyone. This is Fire Chief Paul Dow with Albuquerque Fire Rescue. Now, this podcast is designed to bring you helpful training and best practices and some additional resources that you can access from anywhere. So thank you for joining us and enjoy today's episode. Albuquerque Fire Department, what's the address to your emergency? I have somebody who is having an asthma attack, respiratory distress, and is uh, collapsed. How old is he? 17 years old. Is he awake right now? Uh, William? William? You awake? You with me? He's unresponsive. He's hunched over, still breathing. He's still breathing? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. Is he changing color at all? Where is head? Sorry? Is he changing color at all? Uh, we're going to take a look. How's his color? You can lay down, buddy, okay? Okay. He's unconscious. Okay, well, why don't you just monitor, his, monitor his breathing? Monitor his breathing. I'm going to get some. Get his glasses we're, we're coming, lights and sirens, right now, okay? If anything changes. Okay, we're, we're in the driveway. Okay, perfect. We'll be right there. All right, I'll keep you on speaker. Okay, hold. I'll be right back, okay? Farm okay. Danger Theory Rescue Theory is pleased to be in the driveway. Crossy's Constitution and Hannah, 17 mail asthma attack. He's not alert. Six Delta 1. Princeton Drive Northeast, 6 Delta 1, Rescue 3 into 3. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the AFR podcast. Welcome once again to Dr. Pruitt. Hey Andrew. Hey, how are you doing? Uh, did you have a nice vacation? I heard you got some time off. It was fantastic. <laughs> they let you out for a uh, 10 days. All right. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Uh, so what we're going to start, we're going to have a, a few different episodes of uh, shortness of breath calls or breathing problems. So these are going to get coded as uh, 6 Charlie, 6 Delta. And I'm excited that we're going to be able to talk to Dr. Pruitt, have her right here side by side as we're like going through this call. So um, it's a valuable that we'll be able to get your perspective because you're not available on every call with us, but we're going to talk through some of those issues with you. Yeah, I'm super excited about this series. Shortness of breath is a really high acuity call. Happens a lot. It's fairly frequent and it can be pretty complex. And I'm excited to talk about the thought process behind the approach to, okay. to these Okay, yeah, so it's just going to be as we're going every step of the way. So just put yourself at the station doing whatever you're doing and you hear the tones go off. You get dispatched out to a six delta. It's a six-year-old male complaining of shortness of breath, only able to speak in two to three word sentences. So when I hear a six delta, usually these are some of our most serious calls, only able to speak in two to three word sentences. Um, I'm not really narrowing it down too much, but I know it's a 60 year old, um, a six delta is probably a pretty serious call. Right now I'm thinking about, is there gonna be any chest pain associated when I get to the scene? Um, what what are your thoughts right now just on this very limited information what are all the possibilities that you're thinking about yeah so when i think about shortness of breath i try to keep a very broad differential instead of just thinking about maybe a lung problem i narrow it down to five possible categories head heart lungs blood and musculoskeletal so head would be something like maybe a head injury or intracranial hemorrhage where it's having some effect on their respiratory drive heart um, problems can also cause shortness of breath so especially like a mi would be the most uh, common one obviously lung problems will do it um, one that's not so frequent but is important to think about is anemia 
um, someone who's got some sort of hemorrhagic problem or chronic anemic problem where they don't have enough red blood cells to transport the oxygen can cause shortness of breath. And then also there's some musculoskeletal disorders where there's problems with actually the mechanics of breathing oh, okay. that can make people feel short of breath. All right. So you get in the truck, we're going on the call, uh, getting some more information from the MTT. So as you look at the notes, you see that the home nab is not working and the patient has a history of COPD. So this patient, usually we've got our dispatchers who do a great job. They're t they've been talking to this patient for quite a few minutes. So for me, this narrows the problem. And now when I show up to the scene, I'm expecting COPD and I'll be ready for a curveball, you know, if it comes as I walk through the door. But uh, what do you think our thought process should be once we get some more information? Okay. Now that we have the more information, we know that this patient has underlying lung disease. That's obviously going to make lungs higher on my differential list. But I also always keep cardiac um, close on my differential as well. Every shortness of breath patient is going to need a a 12 lead to at least make sure because the heart and the lungs are so intimately connected um i would keep those two high on my list as i approach this patient okay so that's kind of what you're thinking about as you're driving to this call upon arrival you see that the patient is on a home neb uh, you can hear him grunting he's in a tripod position with his shirt off and you can see our uh, intercostal retractions are present so you get some more information. You've got a new rescue driver uh, working with you on scene there. He's telling you the lungs are clear and he can't get a sat right now. It's just not picking it up. Um, and I've been in that spot before. So what, what happens when you get some information that you're not expecting? Um, so I always, when I'm surprised by information, I always try to confirm it. Um, and if you're, if it's not matching up, try to troubleshoot, obviously. If I was in this situation, I frequently as a, as a teacher in the hospital in a teaching role, if I get information from residents or medical students that doesn't quite match, I'll just confirm myself. Okay. Because it is a, I see it as a good teaching opportunity. Um, especially like lung sounds would be a good example. I'll go listen myself and then, um, discern what I'm hearing and then a lot of times I'll have the student or the learner put their stethoscope right where mine is and talk them through what I'm actually hearing and then that way if they're not sure what they're hearing now they're at least hearing we can talk about what I was hearing right okay so yeah I'm usually pretty skeptical I see a patient uh, presenting like this having a really hard time breathing um, some of the stethoscopes out there aren't the best. So I'm going to be really skeptical. I like to, like you said, if you can listen yourself and, and provide a learning opportunity for that person. I also like Capno is a good to kind of, uh, you know, confirm or, um, disagree with those clear lung sounds. So I think one of the issues for newer people is they're, they're listening for wheezing or rails or something like that. And they just, they're not hearing any, bad lung sounds but they're they're not hearing air going in and out so they're calling those clear lung sounds where really they should be more uh diminished or absent that's absolutely correct a lot of times at the at the spectrum of respiratory diseases where these patients are having bad copd exacerbations a lot of times it's the same with asthma too there'll be actually no air movement and that's actually worse than than wheezing um okay so don't get thrown off if you you know, if you're the if you're the new guy, which you know I've said that before. I'm, oh, it's unclear, and uh, 
I can't get a sat, you know, cause there's going to be some uh, perfusion issues going on with this patient. So you might not be able to rely on, on some of the tools that you, that you become accustomed to. I do think on this call, we do have a lot of tools in our toolbox and I'm glad you brought up capnography and lung sounds and O2 sat. But I think one of our most important tools in our toolbox is, is our eyes. This is a respiratory distress calls are one of um, the patient types that you can look from across the room and tell how sick they are. And you don't necessarily, all that stuff is confirmatory, but a lot of times these patients you can tell the minute you walk in kind of what you need to do. Right. So you can tell the minute you walk in what you need to do. I can now, do that. <laughs> I would that's like gonna everybody. differ for me and then for a brand new person also, like mm -hmm. they're not gonna know what to do. So what are some of the signs um, and symptoms that you're looking for? What are the things that you're spotting from across the room that somebody that's not as experienced um, isn't spotting from the across the room? The things I try to point out from the global perspective from the doorway before you even touch the patient is um, the things you kind of learn in the textbook. So patient positioning. Are they tripoding? Are Do they have their, their hands on their knees leaning forward kind of in that sniffing position? How are they able to talk to me? Can they do two or three word sentences? With these COPD patients with bad exacerbations, a lot of times they'll have that pursed lip breathing where they're, they're kind of auto-peeping. They're increasing that intrathoracic pressure by themselves. And uh, grunt is kind of similar, right? Mm -hmm. And then the really prolonged expiratory phase, um, to again, to help, to help force that air out of the airways. This obstructive process is actually trapping the carbon dioxide in the lungs, and they're trying to get it out um, and working pretty hard. So and just the basic respirations, I mean, they're going to be breathing faster than a you know, normal person just sitting there comfortably breathing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So they look, they look like the ones from the door that look like they're in distress. Those are the ones to file away in your, in your memory to start to recognize that or point that out to your learners. Like if you have paramedic students with you or maybe a less experienced driver. Um, I always try to do that when I'm on scenes, try to try to point out the things that I'm seeing in the patient. So other providers can start to see that too. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, if you're on scene and, you know, for the more experienced people out there, you're going to be pretty comfortable um, handling this situation. If you if you feel like you're able to point out to say you got a brand new um, rookie out in the field, you're able to point some things out to them while you're on this call and you're still managing the patient, then take that time to do it. Um, so as we are on scene, we're um, feeling good that this is COPD. So with COPD, what's happening in this patient's body right now? So COPD is obviously a chronic process that's developed over years and it's usually due to lungs that have been exposed to toxins chronically persistently over time. And over time that chronic exposure has led to basically changes in the dynamics of the lung to where essentially the lungs scar down and get, there's actually some destruction of where the gas exchange occurs. And where there's not destruction, the lungs actually get really firm and less pliant. And um, that leads to increased mucus production, increased risk for infection, um, a whole lot of problems in the way that the lungs are trying to do their job. Yeah, you had a, so you have a, with these podcasts also, if you guys aren't also watching the lecture that goes with them, there's some really good um, visuals that go along with it. So when I was looking at your lecture on this, you know, I see the avioli and I'm kind of like picturing like 
like a bunch of grapes with like nice full avioli and then you imagine like maybe copd they're all kind of like shriveled up and just look on extremely unhealthy you know and now picture that like in somebody's lungs yeah yeah there's actually i'll have some pathology slides on there it's pretty remarkable the destruction that happens in the lungs and everything in the lungs is about gas exchange and in order to have efficient gas exchange you need a good um surface to volume ratio which means a lot of like one cell layer thick of those pretty little grapes for the gas exchange to occur and as that gets destroyed it's more difficult for that to happen okay um what about the the mucus production because that was one other thing that i was noticing what i remember you know i i went to i don't know, I think paramedic school in like 2003 so it's been a little bit since all like the the intense book work but uh, one of the things that I f had forgotten was increased uh, mucus production and also like you had a slide about the cilia not being as effective. So that was like a little bit of a refresher for me. Can you talk about that? Sure. Yeah. So there's there's kind of two types of COPD. There's emphysema, which is predominantly a destructive process in the lungs. And then there's chronic bronchitis. And it just depends on the patient and their genetics, how their lungs are going to react. But with the chronic bronchitis patients, as these toxins and pollutants are coming into the lungs, the way that their lungs have chosen to attack that is to increase their inflammatory response just like as if the the cigarette smoke was an invader and one of the mechanisms that our immune system has to protect against invaders is to trap it in sticky mucus oh. kind of like slime and uh so that's what happens in these airways the problem is as there's more and more toxins coming in with this chronic pollution the airways are producing this slime to trap it and that clogs up the airways and makes a patient cough and then produces mucus Okay, and then what about with the cilia? Are they do they just stop working after time? So the cilia basically get covered by the mucus, so they can't do their job, and it's hard to move the mucus out. But it's also hard to protect against infection. So a lot of these patients with chronic lung disease are more prone to pneumonia, whether it's viral or bacterial, because their immune system is already overwhelmed, tr trying to combat the invading pollutants it leaves room for the viruses and the bacteria to get in and cause cause an infection deeper in the lungs okay so yeah with all these patients you could have probably you could be hearing quite a bit of uh different things when you're listening to the lungs you could be listening to hear wheezing you could hear some fluid in there you could hear some more of like the ronchi like thicker um absolutely sound. absolutely okay um and you mentioned like smoking or a toxin chronic exposure about how long would it take like would a young person be able to get this i haven't seen it in young people necessarily usually this is like we talked about it's chronic exposure over many many years to cause all that destruction and remodeling in the airway to make them so stiff um i'd say the youngest it probably starts in people's 50s 60s i don't know that there's any number or certain number of pack years where you can say okay this is when you're gonna start to get copd it just okay. kind of slowly happens over time all right so that age again that can all go into as you're responding you've got a certain age person now it's not going to tell you exactly what's wrong with them but using that age is going to help you form a picture even prior to getting to the to the call all right, so back to the patient. We got a six-year-old male. His shortness of breath has been getting worse for two to three days. He has uh, home albuterol, but the, the nebs are no longer 
working for him. You get him on end uh, title, and you can see uh, Sharkfin, his O2 sat finally comes up, and it's 72%. Uh, it turns out when you listen, you hear diminished in all fields and his lungs. Um, so, you know, if I were on the scene, I would treat this patient uh, with a duo neb that usually works great. Uh, for me, so that's going to be five milligrams albuterol and 0.5 milligrams ipertropium. Um, and prior to this podcast, I was looking, and um, it turns out that ipertropium is a basic, um, a basic skill, which I think it used to be only paramedic, but but now basics are able to give that duoneb. Mm -hmm. Absolutely right, and actually CPAP is a basic skill too. So a lot of these respiratory distress calls, even though that they're they're kind of scary and it's a critically ill patient their primary needs can absolutely be addressed by a basic crew. Okay, yeah, so that's good to know. And um, there's no reason that basics can't get as good at managing these kind of calls, you know, as as the paramedics. It's all about experience, and the more you go on, the better you're going to get. Um, so we talked about CPAP for a second. I'll get into that later, but um, I, I think there's room for learning here. Um, so the patient we just described, you know, we would normally treat that with a duoneb, get them over to the gurney, get them into the back of AS, and we would just expect that AS is going to get an IV in route and get the uh, get the dexamethasone 10 milligrams on board before they get to the hospital. And most of the time, so once they get in the back, we'd reassess the patient. They'd probably be satting up in the 90s by now. Um, so that's how I would handle a call like this or what I've seen when I was back when I was a driver or a pipeman. This is how these calls will get handled. Um, how would you handle this call? Um, if I walked into this house and saw this guy in obvious respiratory distress, I usually make my treatment decision. Um, this is like we talked about it being a clinical diagnosis. In my mind, I make that decision pretty much between severe or not severe the minute I see the patient. Okay. And, and this so, guy sounds severe. I mean, even I'm admitting like the person we're describing and there, again, there's a, a PowerPoint that's going to have a picture of this guy. Um, but you know, seems pretty bad off to me, but like I said, usually the duoneb helps them out pretty yeah. good. So I know going into the call, if he's got COPD and he's hypoxic and he's having trouble breathing, no matter what, every COPD patient's probably going to get a duoneb and dex, right? Like that's kind of a given. The question in my mind is how bad do they look? And then um, my first move with this guy, since he does look severe in, to be in severe distress, is going to be CPAP. Um, I will get the CPAP on him first, assuming he can tolerate it and we can coach him through it, then add in the duoneb and then do the dex and the mag afterwards. But once I, once I make that decision for the CPAP, he's automatically getting dex and mag as well. Okay. And you're talking about dex. So can you tell us how that works? And, um, you like to give oral dex, which I think would be pretty helpful for us. We, we don't, at least I don't give it as much as I should. Um, and knowing that I can give it orally now that I'm probably going to start doing it. Way yeah. More. The IV dose can be given orally. It doesn't taste great. Kids actually really hate it. You can mix it with some applesauce is what we do in the PZD or apple juice. Sorry. Um, with the kids to make it a little more tolerable, but it saves you from having to do an extra shot or draw, draw up an IV dose. It's easy to give orally and okay. just as effective. Yeah. And then you also mentioned, uh, given well, CPAP and mag. So actually our treatment was a little bit different. So you would have been uh, way quicker on the CPAP and you also mentioned you're going to give mag. Um, let's talk about CPAP first. So for me, 
CPAP seems, um, I was thinking that it's more going to be for like a CHF, like you got fluid in your lungs, uh, pulmonary edema, you hear rails, and you're going to want to get that pressure to uh, like, say, push the fluid out of the lungs and allow for uh, um, gas exchange. Absolutely. You're like on the absolute right track. It's, it's basically the same process. What CPAP is going to give you is positive pressure. And so whether it's fluid that's making that lung difficult to fill or whether it's the mucus and the tight airways that's making it difficult to do the air exchange, you need that positive pressure to help those lungs do what they need to do and get oxygen in there. So um, this guy with his airways that are fibrotic and hard and the air is trapped at the end of the alveoli, it's just going to add some positive pressure to kind of stint that airway open so the gas exchange can occur. Really, CPAP has been shown in COPDers. It decreases the need for intubation. It helps their respiratory acidosis. It um, decreases their work of breathing and alleviates their hypoxia incredibly efficiently. Okay. And you said the, you know, DEX and Duodenab is going to be standard for COPD. So, you know, uh, Lieutenant Woodard was showing us at my refresher how you can get that little blue T and so you get the CPAP on there and then you take the T out of the uh, you know the conversion kit it's like a BVM neb conversion kit but there's a little blue T in there then you put that on the end of the the CPAP mask and then you hook up your neb to there so you can actually get them both going now all this stuff takes a little bit of a you know time on scene but mm -hmm. um, if you you're saying you recommend getting started with CPAP and then you can uh, open everything up and get the the neb going yeah after that. I would add in the other adjuncts after I get the CPAP going you can add in the neb you can add in the mag you can add in the dex um, but that CPAP is gonna really what you're trying to do is open those airways and that CPAP is going to be your quickest and most effective way to do that. And you talked about taking a little bit of time on scene. I absolutely think that's okay because literally you're doing the exact same treatments that I would be doing in the hospital. It's just you're taking time. It's like a cardiac arrest. You're yeah, doing the same thing point, the hospital actually, would yeah. do. Take your time right there because a the patient, if they're in that much distress, they're just going to get worse, right? And so if you can take the time and treat them there, you're doing what they need. And there's no rush to get them to the hospital because you're doing the same thing the hospital would do. Okay. Yeah, that's a good point that uh, I wasn't planning on talking about. But there's been a, you know, a few calls that I can think of. You've got, you know, say a pretty heavy patient um, having respiratory distress and they're in their bedroom. And you're going to have to put them on a mega mover and get them out of the house. Now, get them, again, kind of like resuscitate them a little bit before you do all that. Yeah. Get them... Um, even if you're, you know, planning on having them maybe walk out, like you want to treat them first and then they're going to be able to, to, uh, get that movement to the gurney. Yeah. Cause basically if they're already in distress and then you stress them by having them walk, there's a chance they're going to get a lot worse. And I know, I know these calls are very scary. And when you have someone who's sick, you just want to get them to the hospital. But really the best thing to do for them is to slow down, realize that you're doing exactly what they need, take a minute, get them on that CPAP, get their O2 sets up, give them a minute to, to calm down from that distress that they're in, and then you can get going. Okay, because this might even take like 10 minutes to everything we're talking about. You're, you're going to be on possibly like in that bedroom for 10 minutes before you're even trying to move them to the gurney. So, yeah. um, you also mentioned mag. Now I personally haven't given mag very often. And you know, when you're not used to something, you're a little bit scared of it. Um, tell me your 
experience giving mag and how it works i am a huge advocate of mag i use it for a ton of things it's it's great for headaches it's great for respiratory we use it for preeclampsia um i use it sometimes for patients just having pvcs it's a it's a great drug it's fairly benign the two things you need to kind of keep in the back of your mind when you're using it is it can cause a little bit of respiratory depression um, the doses that we're giving, I wouldn't really worry about that. It happens at much higher doses. And then if you give it too fast, it can cause hypotension. But there's really no downside to it. It's actually, you can get it in vitamin supplements over the counter. Um, okay. But what it gives us in this situation is just another way to act on the smooth muscles and help those relax in the airways and open up the airways even better. Okay. And... Uh, you were telling me earlier, but if you, you mentioned that if you give, if you think this person is bad enough to put on CPAP, then you would recommend going forward with mag mm-hmm. also. Yeah, I would probably do mag last because it does take, you need to have an IV, you need to get it set up kind of in a drip and it takes a little bit longer. So it would be my last modality, but I would go ahead and add it in because if this patient is that sick, they, they need all the help they can get. Okay. And then actually getting down to the details of uh, administration. So when I'm thinking about mag, like I said, I haven't given it too often. Uh, Maybe we could hear from somebody else from the field, but my plan is to drop two grams in one of those 10 cc saline pre-filled syringes. And just now I'm going to give one cc um, every minute, kind of like the epi mini bolus. So my plan is to have the two grams push one cc a minute over 10 minutes, which is uh, for mag in this patient, you want to give two grams over 10 minutes. Right. And if it happens to go in a little bit faster, I don't think anybody's going to fault you for that. I know that we were going through the guidelines before we sat down to talk about this. And there's there's actually a couple different options of how to give it in there. The, f- the first two are kind of reliant on a pump. But the point is just to get it in over a slow amount of time that's safe and um help your patient yeah and have a plan so know how you're going to give it you know there again there are three different options Uh, you can mix it with a 100 cc bag you can mix it in a 250 bag but know how you're going to give it my plan is to give it in uh the way i already described so all right let's see so we talked about how you would handle this 60 year old again this person he's tripoding he's grunting uh, speaking in two to three word sentences. He's got shark fin waveform, satin at 72. So you mentioned you're going to give him uh, CPAP, you get a Duoneb on board, get Dex on board, um, and get MAG on board. What would this patient have to look like for you to consider giving Epi? How bad would he have to be? That's a fantastic question, and I'm really glad you asked. Um, Epi is such a potent medication. I kind of consider it the nuclear option. And so um, this is an older patient who obviously is not well, probably at baseline. And epi will absolutely help dilate those airways. We know we use epi a lot in respiratory emergencies. We use it in anaphylaxis. We use it in asthma. The trick with these COPD patients is that they probably have some underlying heart disease as well. And we have to be willing to take the risk that it might cause some cardiac ischemia, uh, possibly a STEMI, possibly arrhythmia um, at the at the expense of opening those airways. So for me to use epi, I usually reserve it, like I said, as the nuclear option. So I give my my CPAP and my other modalities about five to seven, maybe even 10 minutes to start to kick in and work. 
Meanwhile, I'm watching my capnography, I'm watching my SATs, I'm especially watching the work of breathing of my patient and their mental status. If I really feel like there is absolutely an impending respiratory arrest, then I'll go ahead and give epi. If, if nothing else is working and I feel like this is getting worse rather than better, that's when I'll pull the trigger. Okay. And we, you, t- you said it real early on when we began talking about uh, getting a 12 lead on these patients. So there's a push for us to get 12 lead within five minutes. Now this patient, it's pretty complicated. There's a lot of stuff going on. At what point would you want this 12 lead to occur with uh, say there's, you know, no complaint of chest pain, you know, it, it didn't go down that route at all. It's as we have already been talking about, what point are you going to want to get that 12 lead? Is it going to be on scene? Is it going to be in the ambulance? I think probably the 12 lead, 12 leads are important, like we talked about, but here your priority is going to be managing that airway and helping that patient breathe. So I think this is something that you could do kind of when you're, all your treatments are on board and you're kind of in a place where you can reevaluate. So that would likely be in the back of an ambulance. The, the reason we're getting it is because something has tipped this patient over the edge. They've been living with COPD for years probably, right? But something made it worse today. And the question is, what is it that made it worse? Do they have an infection? Because they're prone to that. It could very well be an infection like pneumonia, but it also could be an MI or even some sort of cardiac ischemia. And um, so we need to to kind of ask that question, why did this happen today? And, and answer that question with a 12 lead. And once you have that 12 lead, um, that might also help answer your question about epi, too. Um, yeah, does it make you, if there's a clean 12 lead, does it make you more comfortable? A little uh, bit, a little bit. But I'd, I'd, st- I'd still be pretty cautious with epi and these people, though. The, the counter argument, though, would be like, it, it, like I said, I'm going to do that in a patient that I think is going to arrest. So I can either do it before they arrest and give a little bitty dose in the muscle, or I can give epi after they arrest and give a massive dose through the IV. So... So if they're gonna arrest, I'll give the little dose first, but but really I try to hold off on the epi and let the CPAP and the, the duonebs do their job. It's pretty rare that I've actually had to give epi in the hospital to these patients. The, usually the treatments that we have will work. Okay, yeah, and I think, you know, I don't know, you know, I'm only on one truck. It's it, that, that's it. I think I mentioned it in one of the other episodes that, you know, I never knew that I could be a better rescue driver because when I was a rescue driver, I was seeing all the other great ones that we have in the field. It wasn't until I became a lieutenant that now I'm working with all these other rescue drivers. So, um, I think it, the same thing applies like right now on, on my rescue, like I run respiratory calls a certain way and I'm not sure how all the other rescues are doing it, but I definitely see some room for improvement with, uh, maybe early CPAP and not being afraid of mag like I have been for nine years. So. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, it's great. That's why it's so great to talk about these calls because they're, they are like relatively infrequent given individual rescue lieutenants. Like they don't happen. I see them all the time in the hospital. It's because they you all get come all, to me. all of Albuquerque coming to you. Right? But, but for you guys, I think that's why these conversations are so important because we can all, we can all learn from each other. Awesome. Well, yeah. Hey, that's how you do it. So, uh, <laughs> just like that on all the calls. So yeah. Anyways, yeah, thanks, thanks, Dr. Pruitt. It's it's really helpful and, uh, you know, makes me feel better on just thinking about these calls in the future on what your advice is and uh, I'm going to take that advice and, and try to improve. So thank you very much. That's fantastic. Thank you.